This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles <clears throat> and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Hello, Biblical Mind listeners. Uh, we are going to be doing a series of podcasts based directly on the questions that we received from you, the, the Q&As uh, that we solicited about a month ago. And uh, so those did not go to waste. We've been collecting them. We got quite a few of them, and we're going to be uh, designing some episodes directly in response to those questions. Very excellent, and I, I'll just add very difficult questions that you guys have posed to us. But um, so those will be coming in the next uh, month or so. So as you listen, and we'll call you out by name, uh, those of you that gave us something to chew on here. For most of them, though, almost all of them, maybe except for this one, uh, I'm going to bring in an expert, somebody who I think knows much more than I do, and we'll talk through the issue together to hopefully give you a somewhat satisfactory answer to your question. But thank you for those questions, and you should always feel free to send us more if you want. It helps us to think about what kinds of episodes we should be producing. Okay, now to the question that I got from two people specifically, and but I've gotten this question a, a few times on Twitter as well. Uh, and Robert Zegel says it this way, how about expressing your view on marriage or no marriage in the new creation? You recently pushed back on the idea of no marriage in the new creation, uh, and I got the same question from James Williams as well, <clears throat> just a longer version of the same one, who James even said, maybe I misheard you, but uh, what's going on there, right? So I'll address this one, and I'll just admit that I'm being very vulnerable. So as a scholar, um, this is an idea that I, I should probably publish an article on, but I haven't published anything uh, in a journal form yet. I do, th this, this argument does show up in my recent book by Cambridge University Press called Biblical Philosophy. I don't know the page numbers, but there's a few pages in there where I deal, like I lay out this argument, but um, I don't want to make you buy a $30 book in order to read just four pages of this argument. I even have a diagram in the book, though, if you're interested in the diagram of how some of these things fit together. Um, but I, I want to talk, I'll just explain here in Luke's Gospel, why uh, in Luke's version of this, I think the same would go in Matthew's version as well. But in Luke's version of this story, where Jesus says there's neither marrying nor given in marriage uh, in the age of resurrection, here's why I don't think Jesus is talking about marrying or given in marriage, that he's using that phrase, marrying and given in marriage, as code language. Um, and there's a couple of points to this uh, to this argument. Um and maybe I could just start with the most basic point. Marriage is something that begins in the nature of creation. The image of God is male and female. God makes male and female. He puts them together to be bonded together. Marriage is not something that comes about because of sin or brokenness or the exile from Eden. Marriage is not an accommodation to something gone wrong, like so many things uh, in the Torah are, including the temple itself. It's an accommodation because things are not the way they're supposed to be. The tabernacle and the temple have to be put into place. Um, so marriage is not that. It, like Sabbath, right? The two things we can think of, Sabbath and marriage, are creational. They're actually embedded in the fabric of creation when it was the way it was supposed to be.
So when I read one passage in the Gospels where Jesus seems to be flippantly annihilating a creational institution, I mean, this would essentially be equivalent to him saying, oh, Sabbath doesn't matter anymore, right? Um, there's, it's got that kind of weight, which we can't imagine a world in which God doesn't care about Sabbath. That It doesn't matter that God rested on the seventh day. Uh, or it doesn't matter that he created men and women in his image, male and female, uh, he created them. And that just doesn't matter somehow anymore. Um, so I think that got my theological juices flowing. Like, did Jesus really just annihilate a creational institution in a flippant response? Well, his response wasn't flippant, but there's a flippancy in his tone, right? That he's he's not taking the Sadducees' argument that seriously. So uh, let me just read the passage, and then I'll back up a little bit and uh, to the beginning of Luke. And there's a couple of touch points uh, in Luke that I think are worth discussing here as to why I think this is what's going on. So in other words, the answer can't be had just from reading Luke itself in this passage and exegeting it, as they say, you know, interpreting it. You actually have to kind of look uh, across Luke and what Luke is doing with this phrase and what Luke is doing more generally, and then how this story fits into what Luke is doing alongside the the, the bigger issue of how does marriage factor into like the plan of God from creation into the new heavens, new earth, or, you know, beyond the age of resurrection, as in this passage. Okay, so this is Luke chapter 20. I'm going to be flipping around a little bit in Luke, so you'll hear my pages turning here. Uh, and I'll just read it straight out of the ESV. I don't think the ESV is like a superior translation. It's the one I use in class because the Old Testament is somewhat standard, even though it's got its issues, like all translations do. We should be thankful to have all of these wonderful modern translations available to us. We're spoiled. Okay. So Luke 20, verse 27, and, and I'll, I'll peter out here when he gets into the, the more uh, Jewish side of the argument. Okay, so there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But... Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God. Okay, he, he then goes into a little bit more of a technical answer there that I actually want to leave aside because I think we can have this discussion without going into the – he's trying to – he's befuddling them a little bit more within their own theological framework there. Okay, so let's talk about some basics. Luke describes these as uh, Sadducees, specifically Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. So when these Sadducees ask this logical puzzle about the seven men being married to the one woman of using Leverite marriage uh, as the rule they're going by here, okay, when they die, which one is uh, her husband or are all seven her husband? And what they're you know, in some ways what they're asking about is what is the metaphysical nature of marriage? Like, does marriage 
the institution of marriage, that thing that we do today where we say, do you take this man? Do you take this woman? Does that create something in the universe that actually persists beyond death into the resurrection and into the new heavens and new earth, that age to come when God puts everything back to rights? Um, I, let's just first admit that is a puzzling question, right? Um, so this isn't a question from nowhere. This is a question from uh, an, a Hellenistic Jewish text um, where this actually happens as part of the story. It's the book of Tobit. Uh, there's a woman who has uh, seven husbands. So this is a this is a real example, you know, as far as like, you know, they would say this was a historic example they're pulling on, say this woman, right? And um, so it's not, they didn't make this up out of nowhere. They're actually, you know, using a case study in this case. Um, okay. And let's just admit, we all, at this point, if we were there, we would all turn to Jesus and be like, yeah, Jesus, what, what say you like, what's up with that? I, you know, maybe I hadn't thought of that one before that, you know, that puts a little wrinkle in my idea of marriage or maybe like me, you know, I, I playfully uh, dedicated one of my books to my wife and I said, you know, to Stephanie, my first wife in the resurrection, right? Cause who knows how many I'll have. Ha ha. Uh, she didn't think that was as funny as I did, I guess, but that's okay. Um, so I just want to note that Jesus does not take their question seriously. So as uh, as promising as the question sounds to us, Jesus just skates right by their question. He's like, it's kind of like Joshua and the, the angel, the commander of the army of Yahweh. Are you for us, our enemies? And, and the messenger's like, no, uh, I've come for Yahweh, right? Just skates right by the question uh, and goes in a different direction. It's the direction that he goes that I think is uh, most interesting here. Now, before we talk about his answer, real quickly, I want to go back to Luke 1 and Luke 12. So Luke 1, if you know Luke's gospel at all, Luke 1, it has a prologue. So it introduces us. It gives us the purpose for Luke's writing. So I think we should keep that in mind here really quickly. I'm going to go back and visit Luke 1. Just a few sentences here. Luke opens, the gospel opens with, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some times past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That you may have, now the ESV says certainty here, but there's no such thing as certainty in the sense that we understand it today. So the word asphaleia really means confidence. That you may have confidence or firmness concerning the things that you have been taught. Okay, so I I just want to begin with the obvious. Luke's gospel is a gospel that comes into being aware of the existence of other accounts and saying, I've written, I've followed things closely, I've talked to eyewitnesses, I've got an orderly account, right? So we should expect things to be in here for a reason. And then Luke chapter 12, and then we'll go to Luke chapter 13, if you want to put a thumb there. But Luke chapter 12, very end, I talk about this one all the time with my students. I've probably talked about it on this podcast a million times. Um, At the very end of Luke chapter 12, verse 54 to the end, uh, I just want you to note that uh, this this is participating in a drumbeat of activity that Luke is pointing out. The people who see it versus the people who don't. The people who get it 
and understand it, what Jesus is doing and saying, and the ones who don't. So we're constantly getting these people divided up for us. John's gospel does it by, you know, the blind, the, the darkness and lightness pattern. Those who are in the darkness, those who are in the light are the ones who hear the voice of the shepherd, those who don't, right? Uh, so Luke's doing something similar, uh, those who get it and those who don't. And look here in uh, Luke 12, verse 54, he's speaking to farmers. He says to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens, right? So you see a cloud, you know that it has rain in it, and it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing blowing up from Egypt, this is me speaking now, this is the, the wind that comes up over the deserts of Egypt, and it's really hot wind. It's called a chamsin today in Israel. still happens to this day. Uh, when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. Now listen to Jesus' next words. You hypocrites. Now he's talking to farmers. He's not talking to Sadducees or Pharisees or Jewish elites or Herodians. He says, you can interpret the clouds that will bring rain. You can interpret the invisible winds that will bring heat. You're hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret this present time? Now you might be thinking, Okay, I can see how Jesus might be doing something similar with the Sadducees in Luke 20, where he's kind of going like, you guys don't know how to interpret anything, so I'm going to go in this other direction. That's partly what I mean uh, by reading this passage, but I just want you to notice the hypocrisy here is you notice stuff that has to do with your crops, your livestock, your family, your livelihood, and not livelihood in the American sense of the word, but like literally your ability to live, to survive and get the nutrition you need year in and year out. You can pay attention to invisible things like the winds or invisible features of clouds or, you know, features of clouds that you interpret uh, to mean rain coming, but they're hypocrites because they have the skill of interpretation, but they don't apply that skill equally to this present time, to Jesus in front of them. Okay, so that's key because th- that idea is going to come up again and again in Luke. I want to look at one other place it comes up before Luke chapter 20 because it's right before Luke t- chapter 20, or not right before, but um, Luke 17. And it's a very, very similar idea. But what's key is in Luke chapter 17 is the only other place in the Gospels where this weird phrase, marrying and giving in marriage, shows up. So I I want us to just sit with that fact for a second. You know, if I said like, you know, if someone said, hey, you went to Germany recently, how was it, you know, what was it like? I was like, oh, you know, people go to work, they marry, they give in marriage, um, they have bank accounts, right? You'd be like, Drew, okay, go to work, bank accounts, normal, marry and given a marriage. That's a weird way to say it, right? And indeed, you would be correct. That is a weird way to talk about people have marry and have families, right? Um, even in the New Testament, I, you know, I'm suggesting to you, that's still a weird way. Even for the ancient hearer of the gospel, you know, the people who heard the gospel in the first or second century, that would have been a weird phrase for them as well, marrying and giving and marriage. Um, and so it's worth looking at, you know, when that when that specific phrase, marrying and giving a marriage, shows up only in one other place, it's worth thinking about, is there some kind of connection here?
Okay, so now you're gonna have to hang with me. If I had a, a slideshow, you know, this would make it a little bit easier to do it visually, but I think you can follow with me, right? So this is uh, at the end of Luke 17, where Jesus starts talking about, um, you know, the the coming of the kingdom, like the return where, um, where Jesus is gonna return, he's gonna resurrect the dead, and he's gonna inaugurate the times uh, that will end up in the new heavens and the new earth. And what are those times going to be like? Well, notice they're going to be like the days of Noah and the days of Sodom. Okay, so here's where it's going to get really particular. Okay, so he's going to describe. Now, before we read this, think in your mind, what was it like in the days of Noah before the flood came? Uh, now, it doesn't say in Genesis uh, what it was like in those days. It leaves it to our imagination. Well, all it says is it was filled with violence, right? And the wickedness of man's heart or the evil of man's heart was all wicked all the time. Um, so you're left to your imagination about how bad that actually was. Um, but then he goes on to Sodom and Gomorrah, and so he says, just as it was in the days in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he said, well, what was so bad about Sodom and Gomorrah? Now we can actually fill it in with a particular story. How bad was it? Well, that, that community of Sodom and Gomorrah was so bad that when foreigners, vulnerable foreigners, came in just to rest for the night, um, the entire town, every last man, as it says in uh, Genesis 19, every last man comes, descends on these, uh, these men who come into the town, these foreigners, in order to publicly rape them, right? Um, that's how bad it is, is that nobody is, and you know, if you think about it this way, if foreigners who duck into the town for the night to just seek, uh, shelter for the night until they move on, if, if they're going to be publicly raped by every man in the town, then you can imagine um, things aren't probably going well in general there, right? Like that's not their only problem. Okay, so we know violence, wickedness has grown universal in, in Noah's day. The particular violence of Sodom and Gomorrah is pictured to us in Genesis 19 and Judges 19 if you want the Israelite version of Sodom. Okay, so we know that going into the story. But I want you to hear the crimes that Jesus lists here. Okay, um, verse 26 of Luke 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Okay, what were they doing? That's me speaking. Here we go, verse 27. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. There's our phrase. The only other place in the Gospels where that shows up. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, that's Sodom and Gomorrah, right? What were they doing? They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Right, so... Notice the the only other context where this phrase marrying and giving uh, giving a marriage shows up is specifically in the context of the judgment, right? The resurrection and the judgment of humanity, or at least the judgment of uh, Noah, right? The judgment of the earth during Noah's day and the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's day. So you have a parallel here. It's a judgment text, uh, and it was the end times. It was the equivalent of the end times for those people, right? And so what were they doing that was so bad? They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, um, planting, building, selling, buying, uh, eating, and drinking, which I already said. And you might be thinking to yourself, self, 
none of those things are bad. None of those are crimes. None of those are even like border on sinful at all. In fact, interestingly, this exact same list of behaviors is what Jeremiah tells the exiles to do. And Jeremiah uh, is at 29, right? With the only epistle, the only letter that we have in the Old Testament is Jeremiah writing to the people who are already exiled in Babylon who are asking this question, what should we do here, right? Should we stir up an insurrection? What should, that seems to be the question going on. And he says, buy, sell, plant, build, uh, settle down, marry, and give in marriage, right? He, he actually says the same advice here. So those activities in and of themselves can't be bad. Uh, they're the normal workaday activities of any people anywhere who are trying to get by and make things work. So why does Jesus, in an indictment of the people in the days of Noah and an indictment of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, why does he say their crimes were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, planting, building, buying, and selling? And, and, and I'm stretching this point out to make this simple point. He doesn't seem to be talking about eating or drinking or buying or selling or planting or building or marrying and giving in marriage. It's coded language. It means something else than what it says. Or he's using this specific language as metaphors to make a point. What is the point? Well, if you go back again to Luke 12, you hypocrites, you can interpret all of this, these invisible features of the world when it has to do with, you know, your livestock, your fields, your family, your own welfare. But you can't interpret this present situation, right? And again, I think what he's pointing out here, and this is specifically my take because I don't know how else to read it. He's pointing out these are people who are going about their business. This is what it looks like. As it was in the days of Sodom and the days of Noah, they were going about their business, interpreting you know, doing status quo, get along kind of stuff. And they weren't paying attention to anything beyond that. They, they were just keeping their heads down, doing their thing. And, and that is enough to bring judgment, right? In in those precious times when God gets involved. Okay. So that's, and I just want to point out clearly the only other use of this weird phrase, marrying and giving a marriage does not mean what it seems to say, right? Like, so I don't think, I don't know anybody who thinks that Jesus is actually indicting marrying and giving a marriage in Sodom or in the days of Noah. That it's, it's a metaphor for just going about your business and not paying attention. And Jesus has already yelled at farmers for this very practice, calling them hypocrites. You, you're just going about your business. You know how to interpret things and you're not applying that skill here. Now we can turn to chapter 20 and we can see his answer to the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection, as Luke opened by telling us, who posed this puzzle to the Sadducees or to Jesus about the resurrection. And let's just listen to his answer again. Verse 34. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Okay. So the only other comparison we have to this is the sons of you know, the, the sons of this age would equal the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, the people in Noah's day, right? The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But to those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, 
neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and sons of God, being the sons of the resurrection. Uh, I just want to suggest to you, it might be the case, I would say it probably is the case, but let's just say it might be the case, that he is not talking about marriage at all, in not marriage in the resurrection. It, it, it may be even true that there's no marriage in the resurrection, but he's not talking about it here. What he says is, yes, you're acting like you, Sadducees, you're acting like people of this age who are just going about their business, doing their thing, and he equates that to the people who are marrying and giving in marriage, just like they did in Sodom, as he previously said, just like they did in the days of Noah, as he previously said. But I want you to think about those who are worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection, who aren't caught up in the things of this day, marrying and giving in marriage, the code language there. So in the end, uh, does Jesus annihilate the institution of marriage? in the new heavens and new earth? I would say, I do not know. Will people be married in the new heavens and new earth? I hope so. I really have enjoyed the last 24 years of marriage with my wife, and I hope for many decades more of marriage with her, and I think it would be splendid if I'm married to her in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, could it be different than that and I'd be okay? I assume so. Is Jesus talking about the institution of marriage in his rebuke of the Sadducees? I don't see any way in which Luke is trying to make that point. That Luke is using this very specific language in his orderly account about those who get it and see what Jesus is doing versus people who do not get it and who do not understand what he's doing. Um, he's using this language to, to flag up to them, you're being like the people in the days of Noah. You're being like the people in the days of Sodom. And you need to be like some other people. You need to be like people who are worthy to attain to the age of resurrection. Uh, or maybe if I could put it in more colloquial speak, he's basically saying to them, you're not even worthy of resurrection at all, the way you're acting, the way you're thinking. Um, and that's why I pushed back and said, I'm not really sure uh, that Jesus ever says anything about marriage, actual, my actual marriage of Drew and Stephanie Johnson in the new heavens and new earth, that he was actually trying to make a point. And a point that has this really shiny object in it called marrying and giving a marriage, but it's a shiny object. It's a rhetorical object that he's using to highlight the fact that um, they're just going about their business, doing their own thing, and hypocrites, because they're trying to interpret something, but they're not interpreting it the way. Um, they're not interpreting this present kingdom that is coming and has come before them. Okay, Robert Zegel and James Williams, I hope that that at least gives you my view. Now, again, I'm being very vulnerable here. I would love to hear uh, by email the kind of, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Because I'm sure some of you are thinking right now, like, great, that all makes sense. I'm with you, but what do you do with this passage? What do you do with that? If you have some of those, feel free to email those to us um, at the cht underscore administrator at tkc.edu. Uh, and we'd be happy to hear more if you have ideas for future episodes, Q&A, or, or people we should bring on uh, that you'd like to hear from. We'd absolutely love to hear your opinion on that. Uh, and that is all for now. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.